From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out on assignment. I'm your host, Marjorie Sunser. Elaine McCusker won't be the next comptroller at the Department of Defense after the White House withdrew her nomination. She's been acting comptroller for the last year since David Norquist moved up to be deputy secretary. Defense News reports it's not yet clear whether McCusker will remain in her confirmed role as deputy comptroller. The Army says it's one step closer to next generation network access. The Army's Deputy Project Director of Enterprise Services, Michael Payne, says Army Chief Information Officer Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford wants to expand a pilot program that lets users log in without common access cards. FedScoop reports the pilot is testing granting access through physical tokens and apps. Agencies have a new deadline to finish transitioning to Internet Protocol version 6. Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent writes in the Federal Register that private sector uptake on IPv6 has grown over the last five years. NextGov reports federal agencies must submit new implementation plans by the end of fiscal year 2021. As coronavirus spreads, contractors could see interruptions to their work. Here with the most important things contractors should do to prepare, Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight. Thanks for being here, Eric. Thank you. Let's start by talking about what we're, what your thoughts are so far on where this could affect contractors. I mean, I think the, the most dramatic impact that contractors could potentially see is similar to what we saw with the government shutdown, where work sites closed down, uh, government customers are unavailable for contractors to work with them if there's some kind of quarantine situation. I'm not saying there will be, but if there is, that's where we could see kind of the most disruption. It's not that the contracts don't have funding, it's that the contractors can't perform because they can't go to a work site because so many contracts are dependent on a contractor being able to access a government work site and access those government customers. You know, in a shutdown, there's there's often more warning. It seems like contractors may not always have warning if a, if a site shuts down, potentially in a different area of the country. What can contractors be doing now to prepare for that? I think what contractors should be doing now is something that contractors should probably do on a regular basis anyway, and that's take stock of the contracts you have, where performance is, um, understand what your rights are if performance has to stop, but just kind of get a great inventory, a detailed inventory of your contracts and whether the government is necessary to continue performing them. Because uh, one thing that contractors always struggle with, of course, is funding. Um, and will contractor be able to get paid if that contract temporarily stops? And like you said, there's not going to be a lot of warning probably if a contract cannot be performed. So kind of getting in touch with the contracting officer or contracting agency in advance and just having that discussion with them to see perhaps maybe there's some, some some things that are parts of the contract that can be performed off-site. So maybe put those off and don't perform them right now to save them if there is a temporary quarantine situation. The sort of hints that what we often hear during shutdown prep is communicate both with, both with your customer and with your employees. Do you think that communication is starting to happen at all or is it still a little early for that? I mean, I think anecdotally that communication is starting a little bit. It's just so much in the news um, and whether you agree, disagree, that it's the news is overblown it's it's out there so i think contractors are starting to take those steps in talking with the government customer i don't think the government customers have a lot of information right now because they don't really know exactly what's going to happen um, as none of us really do but i think having those conversations like they are starting to is really helpful could there be other sort of indirect effects i wonder if um, you know restricted travel might might start to affect contractors in some way 
Yes, I mean, obviously, um, the the agencies put on uh, have requirements, I should say, where contractors sometimes have to travel to different work sites around the country. I've seen it firsthand. That may impact whether a contractor can perform. There may be a certain CLIN contract line item number for that kind of travel and for for the uh, that part of the contract. They may not be able to perform that, and so will the contractor be able to get paid for that? That's obviously something that would be in a contractor pipeline expecting that to happen. So that's an impact. The travel industry is suffering a little bit, so contractors who provide travel services um, will obviously suffer a little bit as well. What about uh, supply chain? You know, I wonder about contractors who maybe are trying to get supplies from places that aren't aren't getting what they need or are otherwise facing delays. Yes, um, I think that's a really important issue that contractors are having right now because um, you know we get supplies from around the world. Contractors pull supplies from around the world, and it's not really clear whether that's, those supply chains are going to be further interrupted or not. Each contract, or many contracts, have uh, the equivalent of what's a force majeure clause. Um, all commercial contracts have a, have a clause uh, in it um, that talks about what happens if there is an inability to perform because of um, a spread of a pandemic virus or something like that. Every clause is slightly different. Every situation is slightly different, so I'm not going to opine on whether it's, it's an effective clause or not in this situation, but that's something that contractors should look at um, because if their supply chain is interrupted, they may need an excuse to tell the government why it's being interrupted because otherwise the government can terminate for default. Um, the government could still terminate for convenience a lot of times if that force majeure clause is used, but the contractor has a lot more rights in that situation. Sure. I know another thing you're, you're looking at is the role of the Defense Production Act. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So for the uninitiated, I guess the Defense Production Act allows the government to step in and say, we're the first customer in line. I know you're making X product for the masses or for other companies, um, but we're first now. So the government can assign a rating to a contract. Uh, DX is the highest rating that, a, that they can assign, and that gives the government top priority for anything. So the government can step into a manufacturing plant and say, these, whatever of this, is for us, and we come first. And the contractor then has to kind of balance that with the obligations they've made to all their other supplier or all the folks that they're going to sell to as well, um, because that, that could be very disruptive for a contractor. I'm not saying that that's a wrong move by the government. I'm just saying that the contractor has to deal with a lot of competing priorities that they might not have necessarily been expecting. Do you think most contractors know about that that policy and are, are familiar with how to do that? It seems like it's not invoked frequently. True. Um, I think the more larger, more sophisticated contractors probably are. But I think a lot of contractors who are medium-sized, small contractors would be surprised to see such a rating in their contract. It's usually on the first page of your contract, there's a rating assigned to it, DX, DO, or unrated. And um, I, would, I would urge contractors, especially ones that are providing supplies to the government, to look at that um, rating and see if it's there, because they may be uh, next in line uh, of the government asking them to provide to the government first. And with just about 30 seconds to go, um, anything else you're watching on this, this potential pandemic? Are you, anything, advice you'd give to contractors right now? I mean, I think just like with everything else, communication is key. Communicating, like you said, to your employees, communicating with the government, being aware that this is a fluid situation. Um, some, nothing may come of it at all, but there, it could be entirely disruptive. And actually looking at the cash reserves that contractors have because um, depending on the type of contract a contractor has, they may not be able to get paid for the time that they're not working. Um, fixed price, you're delivering a product, you deliver that product anyway, you deliver that service anyway, even with fewer man hours or fewer people, that's, that you, you may still not suffer any financial harm.
but I think contractors um, could have a disruption in their cash flow. Sure. Thanks for being here, Eric. Thank you. Up next, a look at the top trends in government contracting straight ahead on Government Matters. All the analysis you need on what's happening in the market. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The federal government is set to spend $600 billion to $709 billion on contracting in fiscal year 2021, according to a forecast from Bloomberg Government. For insight on the top trends in government contracting, Dan Snyder is Director of Government Contracting Analysis at Bloomberg Government. Thanks for being here, Dan. Thank you for having me. What are the top trends that you're seeing right now from your analysis? So I would answer that question in uh, two designated areas. The first is spending trends, and the second is more of the policy trends that contractors should uh, be aware of it throughout the fiscal year. Uh, I'll start with trending, spending trends. Uh, and at this stage, we are at a record high. So we have reached $595 billion being spent by federal agencies. Uh, that's a, that's a, a sharp increase uh, from what we saw back in 2015. So I'd like to uh, uh, identify where those spending trends are, are and as an indicator for uh, where it will be in the future. Uh, the first is Department of Defense. Uh, so they make up the huge increase, $282 billion in fiscal 2015, and that has jumped to as high uh, as over $400 billion in fiscal 2019. Uh, the second is with government-wide acquisition contracts. Uh, we hear a lot about these major contracts, and we're seeing those spending obligations come through in the data that Bloomberg government reports, about $9 billion in 2015, and doubled to about $18 billion in 2019. The next one is small businesses, which has remained relatively steady, uh, about 23%, which is their goal, uh, but still increased in lockstep from about $98 billion to $131 billion in 2019. And the last one is one that everyone is excited about and seems to be the topic de jour. Uh, and that is other transaction authority. In 2015, in the five-year period, uh, just under $1 billion, and that has skyrocketed to $7.5 billion. And our forecasts are suggesting uh, 2020 could come in at about 11 to $12 billion. Let's go to policy trends then. Next, what, what are you seeing there? It seems like OTAs might be a spending and policy trend. They are, certainly. Uh, so the first the one uh, that I would identify in terms of policy trends is the major initiative being undertaken by General Services Administration and their overhaul of the schedules, trimming it down from 24 to 1. So we're now in uh, phase two of three of that initiative, which triggered the mass modification for some of the largest government-wide uh, vehicles, including IT70 and professional services schedule. Uh, the, the schedules program will overall comprises of about $30 billion in spending and it impacts somewhere in the neighborhood of 18,000 contractors. So certainly something that uh, organizations want to handle effectively. So that is uh, expected to be closed out uh, and finalized with phase three concluding at the end of this fiscal year. Uh, another trend that we are watching is uh, cybersecurity maturity model uh, and how that will unroll. Uh, Katie Arrington is handling uh, the, the uh, policy rollout of that initiative at Department of Defense. And uh, I think companies are starting to uh, uh, try to get a better grasp on which level is most beneficial 
uh, to their organization. Uh, another initiative we're keeping an eye on is the Small Business Runway Act. So it is technically labeled the 2018 Small Business Runway Extension Act, but nevertheless is becoming implemented this fiscal year. And that's going to ex extend uh, the life cycle from when companies are designated as small business from three to five so that companies are not improperly ejected from that program and give them a little bit more of a lifeline. Let's uh, dig in for a moment to the, the OTA trend, which I think has gotten a lot of interest. Um, what's driving that? Do you think is there a particular agency or kind of contract that's really um, you know, driving that growth? Yes, uh, I think the question is what are agencies doing to help contractors? And it's really two simple answers. One is eliminating barriers to entry and two, uh, trimming down that life cycle of, of awarding a contract. So uh, I've heard estimates from anywhere to nine to 12 months from RFP release to award. OTA is going to trim that down significantly. So certainly a lot of enthusiasm around how companies can capitalize on those OTA transactions. As I said, they've increased in popularity in spending uh, from about 1 million in 2015 to 7.5 2019. And in conjunction with that, we've also seen uh, an increase in the number of consortia. So that's going to be the parties responsible for managing those. And based off Bloomberg government's gauge, we see that are in the neighborhood of about 30 that exist in varying capacities uh, for consortia throughout uh, government's use. From, from what you see, you know, what are industry's feelings on this? I'm sure everyone likes an abbreviated timeline, but is there some pushback against OTAs at all? Yes, uh, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say there's pushback. There seems to be widespread consensus that they are beneficial on the government side and on uh, the commercial side. I heard one explanation that they have retooled government workforce to more effectively compete these contracts. Um, so I, I don't anticipate any of the enthusiasm to die down uh, as an alternative to some of those historic mechanisms that we are accustomed to. And what are you watching in, in FY20? What are the sort of um, markers you're looking for to, to see what, what, what the data is going to show at the end of the year? Yes. Uh, so we've seen uh, mergers and acquisitions have re remained relatively stable. At Bloomberg Government, we track the top 200 companies. And of those top 200, it's remained somewhere in the neighborhood of 330 to 340 acquisitions that are taking place in that subset of companies. So. Uh, it's likely based on uh, the ability for companies to borrow money and complementing some of the IT modernization and professional services initiatives that they want to add to their portfolio. That number is likely to uh, remain in the neighborhood of about uh, 335. Uh, another uh, very important topic is an influx of uh, large uh, contracts that are coming up for competition. Uh, some of the co contracts that we are monitoring most closely are two government-wide acquisition contracts, one at HHS in the fourth iteration of their CIO SP4. Uh, General Services Administration is also competing their $20 billion government-wide acquisition contract known as 8A Stars. Uh, and then there's a new kid on the block with Astro. So GSA is competing uh, uh, an R&D contract focused on unmanned uh, vehicles uh, that is coming up for competition, and the draft RFP is out uh, for that uh, right now. And then my uh, maybe most favorite is uh, the cloud contract at uh, uh, DIA, which is, which is being competed right now, and that is C2E. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Up next, leasing private buildings is taking longer and costing more for federal agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how GSA can work to fix the problem. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. When the General Services Administration leases space for government agencies, the process often takes longer than normal and costs more. The Government Accountability Office suggests GSA get better feedback from building owners and real estate brokers to address the issue. Lori Rictanis is Director of Physical Infrastructure Issues at GAO. Thanks for being here, Lori. Thank you. What were the main findings of your report? The, as you noted, the General Services Administration is the key landlord for civilian agencies. Uh, when they come to GSA asking for space, if GSA can't put them in their owned buildings, they negotiate with private sector building owners that we call lessors to get space. Uh, you know, they spend uh, billions of dollars on this process. They have 8,000 leases. So this is pretty important that they get the best deals they can for the agencies and for the government. So we looked at that process and identified that, uh, in, in general, there are pieces of that leasing process and specific requirements within the leases that are potentially causing these private sector uh, building owners to charge more rent uh, to cover some uncertainties and the uh, and that's also leading to longer time frames to get these leases done which is frustrating for everyone I think the second issue is that when there are some simplified lease processes that are available to GSA they don't use them as much as they could potentially losing opportunities to reduce costs and make the process go faster what were the issues with the process that were identified by the, the building owners and the brokers? There, uh, we interviewed uh, a number of not just real estate brokers who work with GSA, private sector landlords, as well as some of the tenant agencies, and I would, I would break their, their concerns into a couple buckets. The first bucket has to do with the complexity of the process. We saw leases that were 85 pages long that had dozens of legal requirements uh, and these took a lot of time and energy for people to go through took expertise we heard things from some lessors where they had to get seismic certifications they had to hire lawyers to review things so in that respect the process itself takes a long time and is very onerous the second issue that we heard about was the structure of the leases themselves. Unlike in the private sector where the landlords sort of call the shots, in the federal sector it's GSA and the tenant agencies that say this is what we want, this is what we'll pay, this is what you will do for us. And in the federal sphere, the lessor, the building owner, essentially pays utilities, janitorial services, taxes, and then charges back uh, the cost for those things through the rent. The challenge is when they sign that lease that lasts seven, ten years, the, the lessor has to sort of figure out these highly variable costs and build them into this shell rent. So you have two situations here. If the lessor doesn't plan accordingly, they might lose money over the life of that lease. But if they are concerned about that, they might raise that rent higher than it needs to be to cover their uncertainty, thereby costing us more money. The final issue are the specific clauses in the leases. Uh, again, the private sector leases are very different than the, than the GSA leases, and the GSA leases include some clauses that protect the government but provide uncertainty to a private sector landlord. 
particular one being tenant substitution. GSA is allowed to trade one agency for another, which may not sound like a big deal, but if you replace one agency that's maybe not public facing, low security level, with another one that might be public facing, that's a different burden for a landlord. And another one is early termination. You know that if you and I are in a lease and we break it, there's a penalty. But the, in the GSA leases, they're allowed to early um, to terminate early with no penalty. Hmm. But these uncertainties also lead landlords to, to potentially raise the price of that rent. Sure. You mentioned, um, you hinted at the simplified process. Why aren't they using that in, in many instances? That's a really good question. And in fact, that was one of the recommendations that we made to GSA. Uh, they established a simplified lease model that if there is a rent that's uh, going to be under $150,000 a year, if the agency really knows what types of requirements they have, and if it's a low security building, GSA has a model that has fewer requirements than a regular lease and takes uh, less time. We looked at when they had done that and found that they did get lower rent rates and it did take less time and when we asked GSA uh, why aren't you doing this more they really hadn't looked at it uh, in fact we found that they're that they were only maybe using it about a third of the time that they could they responded and said well maybe it's because our contracting officers aren't familiar with it they may not like it or maybe the agencies didn't meet what they needed to do in order to do that but that is sort of why we said you need to take a look at this because if this offers you opportunities to save costs and make this faster less painful it's worth pursuing thank you so much for being here Lori thank you very much if you've missed the show or are on the go you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government government matters is now available as an audio podcast you can subscribe to our daily program on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.